This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome 5pm, the City of London. You are listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Alex, um, European equities fairly mixed today. The London market tracking higher. Next had a very good day. The UK bellwether uh, in the retail sector outperforming over Christmas. Ryanair had a good Christmas as well. On the continent, it's a little bit more mixed. The CAC and the DAX both tracking a little lower today. But on your side of the pond, it's all about good news in the labour market being bad news for equities. Yep, pretty much. Uh, and we love that phrase, right? Good news equals bad news. So we got pretty strong ADP number. Um, over 230,000 jobs were added by private companies, mostly small and mid. Um, and then we also got jobless claims continuing to fall. This despite the fact that the tech sector keeps racking up layoffs as well. Amazon, the latest, cutting 18,000 workers. So what do stocks do? They fall and bonds uh, and bond yields pop and the dollar moves higher. That feels pretty status quo. I guess the, yep. the question is, how does this position us for tomorrow into Jobs Day? Yeah, tomorrow's the big one. Tomorrow's the kind of the 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 big payroll data that we all anticipate. First Friday of every month. Um, the ADP is not a particularly good kind of translation from one to the other in terms of giving us a guide to that data. But it, it, I was looking back through the numbers. The labor market in the United States, data point after data point after data point, is holding up. Will yeah. we see that tomorrow? It's going to be fascinating to watch. Some great coverage coming up there. So that kind of sets the picture from a market, from an equity point of view. Let's get the headlines now with Charlie Powell. I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. London's business districts are deserted as unions carry out consecutive days of rail strikes following a lengthy row over pay. Office occupancy in the capital fell to 22% and 21% on Tuesday and Wednesday, respectively, according to FreeSpace. That's a company that gathers workplace data. That was less than half of November's rate when London's occupancy reached 52% on Tuesdays. Meanwhile, some of London's biggest railway stations are shut today, while airports such as Gatwick are also deprived of any train services as workers strike again and union bosses warn of more industrial action to come. Commuter services into the capital run by Thameslink, Southern and Southeastern came to a complete halt. Train drivers are walking out following a long dispute over pay. In the meantime, the UK government will unveil legislation in coming weeks to set minimum service levels in essential sectors while inviting trade unions in for new talks to discuss public sector pay settlements in 2023 and 2024. Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered his forces to cease fighting in Ukraine for 36 hours starting Friday at noon Moscow time, but Kyiv quickly dismissed the move as a ploy, unlikely to slow a conflict that is heading for its second year. The Kremlin said Putin gave the order for Russian Orthodox Christmas. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Thank you very much indeed, Charlie Pellet. Uh, headline crossing the Bloomberg, US, the US and Germany to send Ukraine armoured vehicles. Uh, that is a significant upgrade in terms of the capabilities that they currently have. I, I would have thought that would be Bradley uh, coming out of uh, out of the United States. The, the French, obviously, uh, have been talking over the last 24 hours about sending armoured vehicles to Ukraine as well. Uh, a significant escalation 
one might argue. Um, let's turn back to British politics. Let's talk about these strikes. Let's talk about uh, what the political narrative has been uh, over the last 24 hours. So yesterday uh, we had the policy speech coming from the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, uh, laying out his objectives. Uh, today we got the response uh, from his opposite number. So Keir Starmer talking earlier about Mr Sunak's efforts thus far. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. Honestly, you can't overstate how much a short-term mindset dominates Westminster. It infects all the institutions which try and fail to run Britain from the centre. I call it sticking plaster politics. Sticking plaster politics. Sticking plaster is probably the only thing you can get in A&E right now. I joke. Um, <laughs> clearly, uh, the situation is very serious. A- and it's interesting. Today, we've seen ministers unveiling this plan, Alex, for a minimum service level. A- and we're talking about eight key sectors. This is potential new anti-strike legislation that the current government could pursue. And significantly, and I, and I come back to the, to the issue of sticking plasters, this may include the NHS, which is a really big development. Let's talk more about what this could mean, how we, how we could proceed with this. Bloomberg Strikes reporter Eamon Farhat joining us now uh, in the studio. This goes beyond what was originally envisaged in terms of the anti-strike legislation. Originally, it was going to focus around the railways, but this yeah. now goes much further. Yeah, we, we heard about this back in October, actually, and you're right, it was mostly around just the railways, you know, bringing in these minimum service levels, bringing in the health workers now, who we know have been more supported by the public in the past when they take strike action, is a new development. You know, I was talking to different people today, and it's difficult to try and put in a law where you're actually forcing people to work, you know, because yep. the right of striking is one of these fundamental rights, and this thing this could change a lot of people's mind on this. But, but Eamon... If this drags on and, and you know, you can't get into work and you go to the hospital and you can't get care, um, does that change the game? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the rail side of things, you know, these minimum service levels and these, this proposed legislation by the government, which could come into parliament pretty soon, um, a lot of the unions are already saying it's not really workable, it can't be enforced. I mean, in Europe, we have some of these these um, laws already, and they don't they can't enforce them. You know, bringing in minimum service levels it just doesn't work in France and Spain, so why should it work in the UK? Um, it's also, you know, we do have, we have meetings on Monday with rail ministers, with Aslef, who, stri- who took strike action today with the RMT, but it's a bit, sometimes a bit interesting to be timing this legislation just before they're supposed to have a meeting with these unions. Um, I'm sure that there's, there's no coincidence there. Would it make it harder to strike, though? Would it make it... Would the, the, the process is already fairly convoluted. Yeah. Is that the idea, that it becomes even more complicated? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things is you're raising the threshold. Every time you have to strike, you have to you know ballot your members, get a certain percentage of people turning out and also voting for strike action. For some unions, especially the rail unions, that's actually, you know, it gets quite close sometimes, and that's why some have taken strike action, some haven't. Some others, like today I was talking to the to Mick Wellen from Aslef, he was saying, you know, for them, they're lucky they'll have no issue. They always exceed the threshold. They always have many people voting. But for other unions, they could maybe just fall below it and not be able to take strike action, not be able to disrupt people and not be able to get their pay rises. Can I ask an American stupid question? Can the labor leader, party leader, talk about repealing anti-strike action? Like, can he be pro-business and pro-labor at the same time? I mean, I think it's interesting. Obviously, Labour and the, the trade unions have been in a difficult relationship recently. You know, when you talk to different trade union leaders, some of them say that, you know, Labour will support them. Some of them say, you know, we'll see what Labour will do. Um, Labour apparently, if, you know, if they go ahead and, you know, try and repeal this legislation, the unions will say they're on our side, but also the businesses will say, well, you're not really supporting us either. Labour, you know, they've not been turning up to the picket line, you know, as a party. Some ministers have. So it's definitely a fraught relationship between the unions and Labour. So what is the expected outcome of the talks at the beginning of next week? So, yeah, we'll have talks first thing Monday morning between the rail delivery groups, so that's all the train operating companies, Network Rail, and then the unions. And I think the first thing is we're going to set out and see what is the government 
government's role in this? You know, we've heard that the government will be facilitators in talks, but what does that look like? Will they just be watching, you know, the talks happen? Will they really be intervening? Will they be kind of nudging the companies? Um, you know, today I was talking to some union leaders and they were saying, if the government just, you know, sits there and tells us to go have a chat with the, the train companies, we, we've, we've gone nowhere. If the government actually starts setting things down and setting, you know, requirements, then we could actually get some progress and start calling off strikes. Which strikes would be called off first? Like, what's the pecking order here of things that can actually get done realistically and things that are going to take a longer time? Well, I think the, the rail strikes, you know, these are things that can move very quickly. You know, we have the two unions now, the RMT and ASLEF, who took strike action this week. These are both unions who will be talking on Monday. And, you know, if there's an agreement, which, again, you know, this is a big if, or if at least there's a good sentiment, then they'll, they won't be announcing new strikes. You know, I was talking to uh, Mick Lynch the other day, and he was saying, you know, he's not threatening more strikes because he's always optimistic about these talks. He always thinks that something can come out of them. It has been six months of nothing coming out of them, but, you know, it, we've had so many new governments and new ministers and everything that you never know what could happen. When it comes to the health side of things, you know, today, again, um, Sunak in his speech said that he's inviting unions to come and talk about next year's pay review and, you know, give their grievances, but that's maybe a bit late. You know, they want to already talk about, they already want to talk about this year, so talking about next year's is, is probably too far down the line already and they're going to keep striking on that. Eamon, as ever, thank you for updating us. We really appreciate the kind of on-the-ground reporting we're getting from you. Uh, Eamon Farhat joining us, our strikes reporter. Up next, um, the consumer appears to be relatively healthy. Really solid numbers out today from Next. Really solid numbers out from Ryanair as well. What's the signal that we should be taking from both of these companies? I'm going to go get my train. Alex is going to answer that question. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele, going to take you through the rest of the hour. Guy's catching his train. Um, some areas of the economy seem to still be doing really well. Let's read the tea leaves, though, uh, when it comes to this year. So Ryanair, uh, shares were up over 5%, uh, over 6% in London. Um, the airline operator boosted its full-year profit forecast. It is stronger than expected demand during the Christmas holiday period. However, the visibility is still really foggy uh, when it comes to 2020. 23, but investors, analysts, they kind of like it. So let's get more on this with Benny Camel. He joins us. Uh, Benedict Camel, you have been so kind in uh, spending a lot of time with us on this topic today. He's Bloomberg's managing editor for Global Business. What was your takeaway from Ryanair? Because investors liked it. Absolutely. So investors were looking for some good news on the aviation world, and they got it from Ryanair. This was last night. They came out with a fairly thin statement, um, but it was enough to sort of get people inspired. Um, They said that their profit for the full year would be higher than previously anticipated. Uh, They did say, however, that this year uh, they have less visibility on that. The reason they upgraded was principally looking back, looking at the Christmas period, and that period did very well for them. A lot of people traveling, a lot of people out there again. Mm-hmm. But don't forget, this is short-haul travel. This is budget travel. So this is the kind of money spent that people can just about get away with. So Ryanair is actually doing pretty well in, mm-hmm. in a patchy kind of environment. But on the same side, you could say, okay, well, if we enter uh, a recession or consumers get super pinched, then you're going to see some downgrading into Ryanair anyway. So can you make an argument that in a recessionary environment like the Ryanair would do well? Probably, if you had to pick an airline or a part of the airline industry that will continue to do reasonably well in a difficult climate, it will be the budget end of of that operation. It will be the Ryanair's, the Wizz's, uh, the the, the EasyJets here in Europe, uh, because the logic is 
people still want to travel, but they mm-hmm. might choose a different location. They might travel shorter distance. They might travel shorter time. Uh, a lot would have to happen for them to outright cancel their summer vacation. And 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 to be fair, at Christmas, a lot of people were able to travel more freely for the first time since the pandemic, right? So this might have been like the first real Christmas reunion to some extent. Um, is that pent up? Is that type of pent up demand over in this space? Probably, as you say, this was the, the the first and maybe for some time the last Christmas where people felt they could sort of freely spend again. What people will face in the first quarter uh, will be a lot of uh, the bills that they might have forgotten about or that they conveniently wanted to forget about, uh, the utility bills, uh, the credit card bills, um, the, the inflationary uh, pressure that they're now facing. That's going to hit left, right and centre. And mm-hmm. particularly the utility bills will probably have a pretty nasty effect on a lot of people's spending behavior so christmas seemed like a good enough time to sort of you know grit your teeth buy something go somewhere nice and then well worry about it later oh fair enough Dell's advocate if governments are still willing to help subsidize uh electricity bills for for individuals and households does that change the game it might do in the short term, but, you know, government's coffers are also limited and they can't do this forever. Um, so at some point, electricity bills will either go up or stay high and people will be able to actually have to pay that for themselves. Um, for the time being, a lot of people are still probably willing to spend. So I imagine that the first quarter and the, the beginning of this year, the summer period will probably be pretty good for the travel industry. Mm-hmm. But whether that will hold through to the end of the year and what kind of a Christmas, I know it's far away, we might see in 2023. <laughs> oh we just don't know at this point. No, we definitely do not know. Um, so before I let you go, though, I just want to tack in the China conversation to this because China and Hong Kong, their borders are opening for the first time in three years. And I'm wondering, what is a trickle down effect that you expect for the European airliners on this? Or do we not know yet? We just don't know yet. What we do know at this point is it's a pretty unclear picture in terms of letting Chinese travelers come back into Europe. Uh, some of uh, the industry advocates like IATA, the industry body, they've said that we shouldn't have a what they call a knee-jerk reaction towards testing people. We want to have our borders as open as we can while keeping people safe. China has long been, and Chinese travel has long been, sort of the great unknown in terms of the global recovery. Mm-hmm. So it really depends how things go there. No, fair enough. Um, Benedict Camel, thank you so very much for all your time today on this. Wonderful talking to you, Benny Camel, joining us uh, from Bloomberg. Okay, continuing the conversation with the consumer, we're going to take a look at Next. They also did, came in and did really well. They also had a good holiday season. But can it continue? We'll break it down. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. So let's continue the conversation uh, about consumers. So we just talked about Ryanair and people spending on the December vacations, but we're not really sure about the rest of the year. Well, next, raised its profit forecast. Um, There was a cold snap, as you all know, in December. So a lot of shoppers went into stores and they got winter clothing. Etc. But the retailer expects annual pre-tax profit of about uh, 860 million pounds. Um, the question becomes, what now in 2023? I feel like the market and economists have underestimated the consumer's resilience. Will that still be the case this year? So I want to break this down a little bit more with Katie Linzel. She is UK retail reporter. Katie, good to chat. Um, first, let's just start off with the basics. What led Next to do so well? Walk us through some of that. So Next do have hundreds of stores across the UK. So they have a very sort of diversified store portfolio. 
And um, when we look at the fact that we had train strikes in December that did impact footfall a bit, um, Next were actually very well positioned because they don't just have stores in town centres, they also have stores in retail parks that people can drive to, stores in the nearer people's homes maybe, and they don't have to get the train. Um, so that was one positive thing. Um, and they're a very sort of conservatively run retailer. They're seen as being the sort of bellwether for the health of the high street because um, they are good at navigating their way through these sort of these sort of problems. Um, they had actually guided that they thought sales would decline by 2% in the approach to Christmas. And instead, they actually rose nearly 5%. So it definitely looks like good news coming out of next, but they aren't necessarily so sure that the year ahead will be such plain sailing. Right. So if they're the bellwether, what do we know about their uh, outlook for this year? So for this year, they've guided that pre-tax profit will be lower and that it'll be more like 795 million rather than the 860 million that they're expecting to hit um, this year. Um, So it does look like they're thinking, you know, inflation hasn't peaked yet. Um, We're going to see um, shoppers under more and more pressure in the coming months. They mentioned, for example, the fact that um, mortgages, uh, you know, fixed rate mortgages are going to have to be replaced with higher rates than previously. Um, All of these things are going to really weigh on consumers. So they are being cautious about next year. Um, How much do we what's the confidence level in this kind of outlook? Because at least here in the U.S. and I think over in the U.K. also, we've consistently underestimated the, the, the willingness of consumers to spend and how deep they're going to go into their savings uh, to spend it. If they continue to spend, and we're underestimating it, is Next the kind of store they're going to keep doing that? Do they go elsewhere? Do they trade down? So Next is seen as a very reliable retailer, but another retailer who we had come out today with the results is B&M, which is a yeah. budget store. And uh, certainly in food, you know, we're seeing shoppers move more and more to the discounters. And I think we're also seeing that a bit in, in clothing and in other products. Um, the concern is really whether shoppers over over 2023, whether shoppers are going to continue to buy the sort of non-essential items mm-hmm. um, like fashion and like homewares. Um, as you said, Next did point out that we had the cold snap and that meant people went and they bought jackets and they bought extra um, items of heavy clothing for that. But in the coming months, I don't think there's necessarily going to be that same sort of impetus and there won't be the event of Christmas to, to spend on. So it, it could be looking tougher. No, fair enough. Um, all, then the XX savings conversation. I feel like even the OBR and the BOE can't agree on this. Like, will consumers actually spend their savings or not? Because that matters whether or not we're going to have a four-quarter recession or an eight-quarter recession or a five-quarter recession. Do we have visibility? What are companies and what are analysts saying at this point? That's true. So next CEO, Simon Wilson, today was saying, you know, consumers have come out of the pandemic with savings, and that's not something we should underestimate. So I think that is playing a big dynamic here in the surprise, if you like, that at the moment, at least, it looks like Christmas sales have been more robust than was expected. Um, you know, th- those savings need to be really robust because energy bills are rising. As I said, mortgage rates are rising. Th- these are more fundamental things. And you know, food bills as well. Mm-hmm. All these things are very fundamental compared to fashion or other it's maybe true. more frivolous purchases. So we'll, we'll see in, in, in the months to come, I think, quite how many people have their savings intact. Do, do we know what the government support is going to wind up being? Um, 
in April for the consumer? Because I feel like that's also a big question, too. The support for energy bills is going to supposedly wear out in April and then be more targeted. And I feel like that's going to be a huge determinant on whether or not customers and consumers are going to want to spend their savings or not, if you know the electricity bill is going to be jacked up. Yeah, you're right. I think we're waiting visibility on that, really. So April is that key date when um, that support on energy is going to fade away. Um, you know, also for, for, for retailers, right, who have big energy bills um, that they're having to look at, um, that's that's an issue. And I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be key looking at what people are going to get in terms of support for their energy. And, and that could indeed make the, the months following April very tough. Um, next week, we also get a lot of retailers out. What names are yes. you watching? What signals are we going to learn that may be different to next? So, yes, next week is a very busy one for retailer updates. So um, in terms of the big supermarkets, we've got Tesco's and Sainsbury's who are both going to be updating the market. Um, we already saw a bit of color yesterday from Kantar data that came out showing that sales rose in the 12 weeks through to Christmas. Um, but they, they rose for most supermarkets in the UK. You know, it's a, it's a really important part of the year to be doing loads of important food shopping. Uh, and Tesco and Sainsbury actually grew behind the discounters at Aldi and Lidl. Um, they grew behind Asda, um, behind Iceland, uh, behind Ocado even. So uh, I think people are going to be watching those two supermarkets very closely. We've also got Marks & Spencer, um, which is a big household name, you know, a bit like Next. And um, they'll be... Um, of course, reporting on both their food sales, but also clothing and home. Um, it's, and M&S has a lot of work to turn around the business um, with some very big, very big stores with very high rents. So there's quite a lot of work to be done there. So I think quite a focus on, on M&S. And then the last one to mention is um, fast fashion retailer ASOS, mm -hmm. um, which is having a very tricky time of late. And they will be updating next week as well. Looking forward to it. Um, all right, great reporting, Katie. Thank you so much, Katie Lenzel, UK retail reporter, joining us. All right, coming up, we're going to focus on D.C. now. There's still a ton of dysfunction. We'll break that down for you here in the U.S. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's running to catch his train. Uh, let's take a quick snapshot here uh, for U.S. equities. It's turning out to be a pretty brutal trading day. you got uh, the S&P down by a full one percentage point. The same thing with the Nasdaq as well as the Dow. It's the good news for the economy, bad news for the equity market kind of conversation here with the jobs data from ADP as well as initial jobless claims coming in pretty strong. We'll break that down uh, in just a moment. You're also seeing a sell-off across the board in the bond market in Europe as well as the U.S., although I have to point out, I think we are below the highs in the yield. Yeah, barely. You're looking at the two-year up uh, by about nine basis points as a little bit of buying starts to come in in a long, long end uh, of the market. Amazon laying off workers. You know this. Bed Bath & Beyond saying maybe it's not going to survive. It has to go to bankruptcy. We'll talk about that in a moment as well. And then we also got some news recently um, that the U.S., uh, among others, will be sending more advanced weaponry uh, to Ukraine. Um, that was a headline that crossed Germany and the U.S. will send some armored vehicles to Ukraine. 
Ukraine, and that's a major a step up. Um, okay, we're going to go back to D.C. in just a second. But first, I want to get some headlines here with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. The British government is dangling the prospect of public sector pay hikes next year in an attempt to end strikes by nurses and ambulance staff that have piled pressure on an already overburdened health system. The government invited union leaders for talks on 2023 pay raises and promised a cooperative spirit while also saying it will introduce legislation in coming weeks, making it harder for key workers to walk out. Well, as you have been reporting, sources tell Bloomberg the U.S. and Germany will be sending armored vehicles to Ukraine, a significant upgrade in firepower that has urgently been sought by President Vladimir Zelensky in the fight against Russia's invasion. Now, a formal announcement could happen in coming days, perhaps as soon as today. Britain's pubs and restaurants are cutting their opening hours as staff shortages, high energy costs and wider inflationary pressures take their toll. Three quarters of hospitality businesses are operating below capacity, according to a survey published by the British Chambers of Commerce. The BCC says confidence in sales remain slumped at the end of last year across the whole UK economy, with retail and hospitality particularly weak. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thank you so very much. Also, I just want to point out, this is coming from the journal, but I think it's worth hitting here. Um, crypto lender Genesis is laying off 30% of its staff. Now, Gemini has a fund that's run by the Winklevoss brothers um, where they take your money and they give you 8% return um, for your crypto assets. Then they, they lend it out to the likes of Genesis, who then reportedly gives some money back to Gemini to pay their clients. And then Genesis goes out and makes really interesting, cool bets. That really hurts when the crypto industry starts to blow up and a lot of that money is in tokens. So I just want to point that out. We'll follow this story for you. Reportedly, Genesis laying off 30% uh, of its staff. And that's a subsidiary of Digital Currency Group. Just keep all that in mind uh, as we go forward here. Okay, so that is the update in the U.S., in the crypto world, and everywhere else. I want to turn now to the dysfunction in D.C. So Kevin McCarthy is still trying to become Speaker of the House. Uh, Guy and I spoke with Kim Wallace. He's Senior Managing Director and Head of Public Policy at 22V Research. And we're talking about McCarthy's chances, kind of what happens next, and how it actually impacts the market. If I'm wrong, he gets it, and it's a tenuous deal that won't last long, uh, because part of what he's agreed to is allowing as few as one member to bring up a vote of confidence, which means every hour of every day you're trying to manage the House and you're looking over your shoulder. It's impossible to govern the House under those circumstances. In that kind of scenario, how worried should I be, Kim, about the debt ceiling? You know, Guy, I'm going to take the other side of what's in the popular chat. I say that uh, this actually greatly, this episode, improves odds that risk aversion around default is as high as it's ever been. I don't think default is worthy of the discussion that it's getting. We will go through volatility, of course, headline and price volatility as the day grows closer. But this episode doesn't build confidence, and it probably makes it easier to find 10, 15, 20 Republicans of the 202 to do a deal on uh, debt ceiling. That was Kim Wallace, Senior Managing Director over at 22V Research. Now joining us is Bloomberg Deputy White House Editor Mike Dorning. Mike, what's the count today? Uh, well, they've just started voting. So far, there's uh, seven for McCarthy and four for Jeffries. But uh, it doesn't look at the moment, based on what we've been hearing, that McCarthy yet has all the votes. 
um, to be speaker. So it looks like this uh, seventh round of voting will again be indecisive as far as we know. What, what kind of concessions has McCarthy made to even get to, to try yet again? <laughs> He's made it even easier to throw him out is one of the things that he's done. He's basically said any one Republican member now can start this all over again by setting up a motion to vacate the chair. So basically any unhappy Republican can throw the chamber back into chaos. Um, that feels totally unworkable. Um, did any of the 20 that didn't vote for him in the past on the Republican aisle come across from this or even absconded from a vote and didn't show up, which then lowers McCarthy's threshold? We don't know. We're watching now. It's a roll call vote. So they go through the alphabet and they've just started. Um, Fair enough. My question is, like, is this the way that democracy should work or no? And, And I realize that that's sort of a large question, but the few step in the way of a functioning government But if they don't like the government, they have the right to do that. And I'm just wondering going forward and the broader implication of this in terms of how the government functions, is this good? Is this bad? Well, it's going to make it really hard to have a workable House majority because the Republican majority is so slender and so divided. Now, actually, the Senate does work that way. Any one member can really throw a wrench in things. And that's one reason why you can't get anything done in the Senate without a supermajority. Ah, okay, I see. Um, In the meantime, if something happens, like there's these floods coming to California, like what if California needs federal aid, for example, God forbid, but what what happens? Like if, if the House can't do anything, if there's a crisis, what happens? Nothing can happen for the time being while they're still, you know, going back and forth over the speaker. But, you know, at some point, um, they'll wear themselves out and uh, they'll move on. Um, What McCarthy is hoping is that he can show some momentum and then gradually wear out the dissenters. What a lot of people think might happen is eventually they'll wear out the people who are supporting McCarthy. We're going to have to see. This could well go on for a little while. Does your reporting indicate that those holdouts are actually going to back down? We have not heard any indication that enough holdouts will back down yet, that uh, this could be settled today. Um, That said, you know, they don't always tell their dark secrets to us ahead of time. No, fair enough. Um, What are the Democrats doing right now? The Democrats right now are holding firm, and they're just voting against the Speaker and making them go through this, showing the Republicans to be weak. There's always the possibility that there could be some moderate overture to the Democrats to kind of strike a deal to either help McCarthy or someone else become Speaker. But we don't have any indications that there's any serious negotiations going on at this point on that. Yeah, at this point, well said. Um, yeah, it's really it's really quite a fascinating moment uh, in history. We are looking, I'm looking at the screens right now. Voting is underway. Looks like 22 to 28, 23 to 28 still. Uh, it's really hard to get that majority for Kevin McCarthy. For the markets, though, honestly, they don't seem to care yet. If it becomes a debt ceiling issue, that when it becomes problematic. Mike, thanks a lot. Bloomberg Deputy White House Editor Mike Dorning. This is Bloomberg.
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. I want to focus on some of the company stories here in the United States. And one of them in particular, talking retail, is Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, we are looking at the lowest level since 1993. I don't know. I was in high school back in 1993. Um and that's where Bed Bath & Beyond is, because they're coming out and saying, hey, guys, we might have to file for bankruptcy. So let's get more on this. Jeanette Newman is Bloomberg high-end retail and personal care companies reporter. Um, Jeanette, what happened in Bed Bath & Beyond? <laughs> Good question. Hi, Alex. Um, so this basically Bed Bath & Beyond for several years and, and even as long as, as a decade has been in kind of a downward spiral. And now the company is saying that one way to stop this downward spiral is potentially to declare bankruptcy. They're saying they're also pursuing other options, maybe selling assets, which um, analysts and investors seem to think will be kind of difficult. Um, so the most likely option at this point seems like bankruptcy. Where did Bed Bath & Beyond go so wrong? Full disclosure, I was at a Bed Bath & Beyond this weekend. Um, I have a house in Massachusetts. And I was like, is this place going bankrupt? Because there was like an enormous 70% off sign in the front of the store and there was no inventory. And the shop workers were like, no, 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 we're not going bankrupt. We're just waiting for inventory. And I was like, are you though? Because this looks really sad. Where did and, they and go think, so wrong? Yeah. And I think that's, that's been the situation, what you just described, Alex, in a lot of stores in, in Bed Bath & Beyond across across the country. I mean, if, if we go if we go kind of, let's say, way back, it starts with, you know, not effectively competing against Amazon, let's say about a decade ago. They just have never Bed Bath has never really had effective e commerce operations. And then, you know, but it's not just it's not just Amazon. Obviously all companies, all retailers are competing against Amazon and some have done quite well against Amazon. So some of it is also management missteps. Um, you know, the company had kind of a warehouse system that was a bit of a mess. Um, for example, and then more recently, um, you as a Bed Bath and Beyond shopper may may have noticed more recently within the past several years, the company basically decided to switch to selling more of its own brands, so mm -hmm. private label brands, and switch and and kind of shift away from the well-known national brands. And here we're talking about things like OXO, UGG, SodaStream, um, where that you know brands that had drawn shoppers to Bed Bath and Beyond for years. And they decided to switch to private label because it can be it can be cheaper, mm -hmm. um, so it can be you know have higher margins for retailers, and that proved to be a, a really huge misstep. Now they you know in the past several months they said okay we we made a mistake now we're shifting back to those national brands, but they're in financial difficulties, and so some of these national brands are saying well we're not so sure if we're going to ship our stuff to you because we're not sure if we're going to get paid. And and so that led to some of the inventory shortages that you said you saw at your local Bed Bath & Beyond. Oh, I see. Okay. So now what? I mean, now they again, they say they're they say they're pursuing pursuing different um different options. Um and, you know, analysts and investors do seem to think that the most likely option is bankruptcy. And and there's, you know, a debate about what exactly that bankruptcy could could look like. And we're still trying to figure out the details of what any potential bankruptcy might might look like. But some people have suggested that it would Bed Bath and Beyond might emerge as simply a smaller company. That, you know, the company has enough name recognition. You know, people go there for when they're starting college, they go there for their wedding registry. So it has enough name recognition that it might make sense for the company 
to still continue to be in existence, just in a smaller existence. So what would that mean? That would mean, you know, closing down, closing down stores and maybe concentrating in certain regions in the U.S. Um, they have around, I think it's something around like 700 stores across the U.S. for Bed Bath & Beyond. They already are in the process of closing stores. That's been in, um, in the works since um, since August to try to cut costs as they face these financial difficulties. But in a potential bankruptcy, they could also just say, we're going to cut a lot more stores and, again, emerge as kind of a smaller, leaner company and hopefully come up with a better strategy, um, you know, double down on, on selling more of those uh, national brands that had drawn consumers to the company for so many years. Yeah, it really, I feel like they're really late to this game. The closed-down store game um, at the end of the day. Really great reporting. Thank you so much, Jeanette. Jeanette Newman, uh, Bloomberg High-End Retail and Personal Care Company's reporter. And like I said, I'm just pulling up the stock right here. Uh, the stock is trading at like $1 in change. We're looking at $1.85, down 23%. Ouch. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. So let's get to that good news, bad news situation that I've unfortunately had to talk about today. Um, The good news in the economic data, ADP. Uh, employment coming in higher than estimated. 235,000 jobs uh, were added in the month of December. Also, initial jobless claims continuing to trend lower, continuing claims lower. Let's get some more insight with Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. I also promised that he'd be here today previewing jobs tomorrow. So, what was your take on these numbers? Um, they're, they're minor contributions to the uh, view of the labor market at this point. The thing about uh, jobless claims is over the holidays, they're very, very hard to uh, make sense of. Uh, the government tries to seasonally adjust them, but the dates change every year. Uh, you know, the, the, the date, uh, Christmas doesn't change, but the date, um, uh, the day of the weekend, which it does, uh, falls, does. And so you get um, some weeks where the numbers are higher and some weeks where the numbers are lower because it was a holiday and people didn't file. It's, it's really hard to figure out what's going on there. I think the only thing you can say about jobless claims is that they remain low. And that's mm-hmm. a sign of uh, strength in the labor market. Uh, the ADP numbers, is it's also hard to know what to make of them because they changed their methodology about four or five months ago. And we, had, we don't have enough uh, data on how they really relate to the non-farm payrolls figures. ADP will tell you they're not trying to predict it. But uh, the only other thing I can say is that for the last four months, ADP has come in lower than payroll. So if there is a trend to that, then we should have a higher uh, payrolls number tomorrow. I asked this question earlier offline, and I was like, okay, we keep getting headline after headline about all these tech layoffs, and Amazon the latest with 18,000 workers. Does that show up in this kind of data? And if it does, like, how do we see it? Very hard to parse it out because tech jobs are a very, very small part of the economy. Um, you know, There's 155 million jobs out there, and maybe uh, two to three million are tech jobs, and not everybody's getting laid off. I mean, 18,000 Amazon workers would be 0.01% of their labor force. And also, um, what they said at Amazon is that they are eliminating positions. They didn't say they're firing people. So a certain number of those 
positions are probably going to be ones that aren't filled right now. And so uh, we don't know how many people would actually lose their jobs. So it's very hard to track. Also, in the labor data, I mean, what's a tech job? Uh, it, it, it's everything from people who build computers uh, and maybe the parts that go into computers to people who write software code to the accountants who work on the uh, the company's books. And so those jobs are all scattered throughout the uh, th- throughout the, the BLS report on on jobs. So uh, it, it's not like uh, a major huge factory floor like automakers we can track uh, auto workers. Uh, we don't get it, it doesn't give you a full picture of what's going on at GM because they have accountants too, but you you have a much bigger sort of a portion of a, a sector of the labor force that is easier to see what's happening. So then tomorrow when we get the jobs number, obviously it's going to be wages. But if the Fed is looking at core services, X and X shelter as inflation, what are those jobs that you're going to be looking at then that feed through to that on a wage level? Like, is it hotel workers, restaurant workers? That's the biggest category. And it was the biggest category in the ADP numbers today. They're still hiring. Uh, they can't find workers is the problem. Uh, those are the sectors that pay the least and are probably have the least attractive jobs. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, a lot of uh, those jobs are filled by immigrants, and, and we've had a big crackdown on immigration. So there are shortages there that are forcing companies to pay up. And in service industries, labor costs are your biggest cost. So that is uh, the problem that the Fed is really looking at. We're we're seeing a decline in uh, goods purchases, and we're seeing uh, prices go down in that sector, but it's the services sector that they're worried about. Mm -hmm. And so we'll look to those numbers tomorrow to see what's going on. Um, What did you make, then, of the market reaction today? Do I have to keep talking about good news is bad news kind of thing? Is this a delayed reaction to yesterday and the Fed minutes? Is this like it's a daily trading thing, Alex Sheshit? It it, it may be (laughs) a delayed reaction. It should be a delayed reaction. Uh, You can't make things up in the Fed minutes, but what you highlight Mm. gives it some spin. And we knew that they had raised their forecast for the terminal rate. We knew uh, that they had changed their forecast to more inflation and higher unemployment. And Jay Powell had come out in his news conference and been very hawkish. So what they were doing yesterday, it appears, is framing the minutes as a way to tell the markets, hey, pay attention. Sort of like that Jackson Hole speech that Powell gave, that we, we really mean it because the markets have been loosening financial mm-hmm. conditions. And they made a point of saying that is working against us and that if that continues to happen, they might have to raise rates more than people and then, expect. And I couldn't really figure out why the lack of market reaction yesterday, because that paragraph really surprised me when they said that, basically scolding the markets for trying to front run them or something. Um, and they were super clear about no cuts this year. Market didn't do anything. And then we get the labor number, and then it's like, oh, now the markets believe the Fed? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, now we get it. The labor market is really hot. <laughs> I don't think you can take any one day and say that the market is telling you anything. Um, I have study, to. Study, I do three yeah, hours you of get, programming. You, you get paid to do that. Yeah, <laughs> study a number of years ago by uh, Larry Summers, uh, among others, found that um, there are five or 6,000 stocks in the U.S. indexes. And each one of them has a different story, whereas there's one bond mm-hmm. you know, for each tenor in the United States. So uh, those markets react 
differently. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to get a view of what's happening in the markets at any one time, except in the two minutes after maybe you get a, a, a new piece of information. Obviously, Bed Bath & Beyond today <laughs> being a good example. But uh, it's, it's really hard to draw a conclusion. Um, do you have a call for tomorrow? Uh, I know you're not supposed to, we, but we, I mean, we, the whisper were, number is something like 235,000. Yeah, I think that's realistic in the sense that uh, the, the official consensus survey is 200,000. But if ADP has been low, mm. then you could see a higher number. Mike, I appreciate it. It is lovely to see you as well. Um, Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. All right, place your bets. Jobs Day tomorrow. We'll break it all down for you on the cable. Have a great night, everybody. This is Bloomberg.